It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Well, it's better to be late than to completely disappear. We are a week later than we should be on this podcast, but I want to tell you what our last week has been like. Now, I was actually on vacation. I will apologize that we couldn't get everything fixed before I did go out of town. But the big thing was is that we had a big upgrade, and we had a lot of big things happening for the money-guy.com podcast, including a brand-new website as well as sponsors. Sometimes when you we've had the growth we have where we've picked up a lot of subscribers, and this has been bigger and better than I ever would have anticipated, I'm trying to do everything I can to keep you guys happy, and uh, I just apologize for the technical problems we've had with the brand new website. I'll tell you the big problem is is that we uh, we had a designer put together the package. It looks outstanding. Our new advertisers love it as well. The problem is, is that the developer, this is a kind of a new technology with the RSS feeds. She's more of a an artist, you know, with getting the design to look really good, but uh, we, we weren't able to get the RSS feed in. We've had some issues. We've even enlisted the help of um, Todd Cochran from uh, the podcasting, the do-it-yourself guide book out there. I'd encourage anybody who's thinking about getting into podcasting to go look at Todd's book. He also has a great website, geeknewscentral.com, and Todd really tr- helped us out and really got everything back up after we had pretty much knocked the wheels off this wagon, but... We've got everything working now except for the new website that will hopefully be up in the next week. I am putting out, um, we've got some emails sent out as well as some phone calls because we're trying to find an expert that knows how to integrate an RSS feed within um, a brand new website. If you think you're an expert and you'd love to throw some um, input our way, We'll, we'll, of course, take all the free advice we can get since this is a free podcast. I hope maybe this is one of those areas where we can ask for some dividends back on some of this free advice. But I'd love for you to contact me. You can contact me at my email address, jbp at preston-cleveland.com. But just in case none of you guys are um, willing to give us some charity there, we do have some people we've sent some messages out to, and hopefully we can get this fixed in the next week and get the brand-new website up. So thank you so much for joining. This is a unique um, show today that we're doing today. Instead of doing the typical financial chaos topic, remember the whole point of doing this podcast is that we're trying to restore order to your financial chaos by giving you the tools and the advice to be better consumers as well as better savers and better investors. And part of that what it has been in the past is that you all have been sending me a ton of emails, and I haven't had a chance to respond to all of them recently. So this is going to be a special show today where we're going to um, focus on uh, giving you the advice you need based upon your subscriber emails. After I go over these emails, I am going to tell you at the end of the show uh, a few updates on things that um, we've got coming down the pipeline, as well as tell you about the survey results that we've had. If you've noticed on the website, we've had a pod track where we a lot of you filled out surveys, and I want to tell you some of the results from that the good and the bad, as well as the ugly, so you can know about that. But let's go right into some of these subscriber emails. I want to start off with kind of one that I thought was quite humorous. It was off of the last podcast that we did, which, if you remember, was talking about good versus bad debt and um, faking success. 
And Josh, one of our subscribers, wrote, this is his email. He said, I have to disagree with a statement you made in the past podcast. You made clothing purchases sound like a liability that you should avoid. However, I take the view that done within reason, clothing is actually an asset which pays you returns. The clothes you wear make an impression on others about your professionalism and character. And being only 26, one of the biggest issues for myself and my peers is being taken serious in the business world which usually is run by the others with the pay in their hair. When chosen carefully, your clothes can make a powerful statement to your managers, peers, and sales prospects that you are promotable. Of course, this is not a license to spend thousands of dollars a year, but I shop carefully. Expensive pants that cost $100 go a long way, and if you plan on wearing them for the next two years, say once a week, they cost less than a dollar per day. And you make a powerful statement about yourself and your work ethic. Same with shoes. Buy expensive ones, but make them last for a long time. The point is not to have the latest styles, but to choose garments that are interchangeable and you will plan on keeping for the long term. Based on this, I believe clothes to be an investment, not a liability, as you made it seem in your podcast. Now, Josh, I appreciate your insight. In this one, Josh, he was really making a statement. The rest of these emails I have are all questions, a lot of deep questions that I think you're going to get a ton of free advice from. But I just wanted to tell you, I think Josh has um, some points here, but he, he's really talking to the wrong type of guy. You have to understand, I am a, the guy that worked at a big firm, and one of the reasons I was so glad to be out on my own is because at the big firm where I worked with you know all the big names, I had to wear a coat and tie every day. It, that bothers me. I'm just too simple of a guy to wear a coat and tie every day. I, I come to a, the office pretty much every day in khakis, and clothes just don't do it for me. I'm just not that type of guy. I, you know, the shoes I, I'm currently wearing came from the Lands End clearance site. I went on the internet and saw they had some loafers that were like $15.99 because they couldn't find anybody else who wore a size 13. And I, I don't know if they're ugly, but I bought them, and that's what I wear. So you can see that. Some of this stuff just goes right off of me. It doesn't mean Josh is wrong. It just means that I completely could care less about clothes. And clothing has nothing to do with electronics, has nothing to do with surround sound, so I could care less what I, what I wear. It's just not a gadget. Um, I had some insecurities. You know, I'm only 32, about to turn 33. I know where Josh is coming from with his insecurity based upon age and wanting people to take you serious. Um, with your expertise and what I did with that when I was um, young in the business world is I, I fueled my insecurities and covered them up by putting an alphabet after my name and that's why if you ever go look at all the credentials it, I guess it's kind of an insecurity that went out there I did the the CPA because that's when I was a, an accounting major in college I did the CFP to give me a little more credibility and then the PFS which is the personal financial specialist was you know one that was added on top that's what I did to, um, to try to make up for my youth, I tried to show that I had some expertise. But, Josh, I really appreciate it. I hope I didn't upset you with um, my thoughts. It's just clothing is not a big thing for me. I just uh, have never been a clothes shopper. Now, a more serious email. Let me read this one. This one's from Robert. Robert wrote, Greetings from Hollywood, California. First of all, I want to thank you for your very informative po podcast. All of the podcasts I've subscribed to, most of which are finance and news related, yours is the one I look forward to. 
Um, you're providing an invaluable service to a generation class that in light of drastic changes in pensions, Social Security, etc., urgently needs good financial advice. Keep up the good work. I have a question for you regarding my 401k. Fortunately, my company recently switched from a lousy management firm to Fidelity Investments. Although limited, Fidelity offers a far more impressive array of low-cost funds with good track records. Most of my money, about 60%, is allocated in small to mid-cap funds. The best performers are late, with um, 30% in large-cap domestic and international funds. The buzz I'm hearing is that many money managers are pulling out of small mid-caps as these stocks are likely to suffer with rising interest rates in an inflationary economy and investing instead in attractively priced large-value fund stocks. My question for you is, should I keep my small mid-caps and continue or not continue to contribute to them? Or should I reallocate the money toward the large value and growth funds? I think how to rebalance your 401k portfolio would make a good future chaos topic. Robert, outstanding email. This is good stuff because I think I've done two investment podcasts in the past and I've tried to go in as deep as I could, but you have to realize one of the critiques I've gotten on these surveys is that I'm too long winded. And I want to tell you one of the things I think I have failed to really go deep with is the asset allocation. So I want to give you some tips on this. This is one, if you are keeping notes, get out the pen and paper. I think this is where the free advice, putting the quotes around the free is really helpful, is um, the secret to asset allocation is that you've got to overweight, meaning buy, where there's opportunity. And then you underweight in areas where the value has already peaked. However, you need to keep a good basic allocation because, remember, we're not market timers. We just go after where we see opportunities, and um, that's where we overweight. And you need to take into account what's happened in the past. And, and I think what, what I'm talking about with this when I talk about overweighting is, for instance, let's talk about real estate. If you were to look at my clients' portfolios back in 99, 2000, 2001, and 2002 when the market was getting hammered, the stock market, I should say, was getting hammered uh, because we had entered into a recession and the Internet bubble had burst, I was loaded up on real estate. It was just one of those areas where I felt like it was undervalued and it was a great alternative to what was going on in the stock market with the valuations. Now if you looked at the portfolio really from late 2000, mid-2003, on to now, I felt that the valuations of real estate weren't as favorable, so we had dialed down the asset allocation for all of our clients in that area. Now, it's one of those areas where it's continued to defy logic to me is that it's continued to, just like I was looking at quarterly reports for this year so far, and, and real estate's continued to be one of the top performers. So you're not always 100% right, but you can say pull down some as you feel like you've made some money off of it. This is where you buy low, sell high. Most people ride everything out. You do need to take some money off the table when you feel like the industry or asset class has peaked and you can take some money off. It's the same thing I feel kind of with the commodities and oil and gas trading stocks right now is because a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon, really going after some risky investments with you know buying energy funds and oil and gas investments and they've probably missed the boat to a great deal. Now sure gas could go up to oil, oil could go up to $100 a barrel, but I really think you got to be careful about doing that. You always want to get to things before everybody else does and that's where you overweight where you see opportunity and underweight elsewhere. You also have to take into account where we are in the market cycle and this is going to get directly with what Robert's talking about. 
small cap stock. Let's talk about what small companies are. Small companies are companies that you probably don't know who they are unless they got a factory or a, a location right in your hometown because they're just smaller companies. There's a, a ton of them out there. You're not going to know who they are. Mid-sized companies are somebody like H&R Block. You've probably heard of a few of them, but they're just not as big as the large caps. Your large caps are your Home Depots, your General Electric, your Coca-Cola, uh, you know, all those different huge companies that everybody, if you walked up to them and pulled them off the side of the street and you said, hey, um, have you ever heard of Home Depot? Of course, most people have heard of Home Depot, and that's a large cap stock. Now, you have to think about where we are in the market cycle, and what I mean by that is, when the market's getting beat up, meaning that the, the market's down like it was in 2000, 2001, and 2002, there's usually a trend of we're in a recession or something has happened economically. And what happens when we get in those downturns is typically the government tries to come out and react, and they do two things to try to stimulate the economic growth. What they do is they cut interest rates, and then you usually see them also cut taxes because they're trying to get the money stimulated to get more people out there spending money because when we go into recessions, everybody gets really tight and stingy with spending their money. So they're trying to stimulate that economy. So when they do that, who do you think it impacts first? This is all common sense of investing. I think a lot of professional investors try to make this much more complicated than it actually is because they want you to pay their high fees. But when you do this, of course, the small companies are going to be the first to reap the rewards of those lower interest rates and those tax cuts because they can they can react much quicker. It's like and the good analogy I've always heard, and I've used this a ton of times with my clients. If you think about you're in a harbor and you've got a big ocean liner and then you've got a speedboat, obviously that speedboat can make moves much quicker than that big ocean liner can. That ocean liner takes a while to react. You know, when they turn the steering wheel, it slowly turns around the harbor, whereas that speedboat, it's instantaneous. So that's why you will always see whenever we come out of a bad market, small cap stocks are going to pop first, and they usually have the biggest gains, historically, I should say. You know, let's put that disclaimer out there. You know, there's always going to be some, you know, something that doesn't go as anticipated, but historically, the small cap stocks do better. Now, when you come through a market like we've had now, where we've had really from late 2002, 2003, 2004, we've had a decent stock market. And then first quarter, uh, and 2005 as well was a good year, and then first quarter 2006 was decent. So you're starting to wonder now, where are we at in the market cycle? We've had four good years on the stock market. Where do we go? You have to wonder... Are we headed for a more volatile marketplace? And when that happens, you do want to retreat. You want to pull some of that money out of the small cap sector. We actually started pulling money out of the small cap area probably about a year and a half ago because the, the small cap area has done incredibly well. As a matter of fact, it's at levels much higher than it was back in 2000, March of 2000. Whereas if you go look at the S&P 500, um, the Dow, you're not going to see that they haven't even completely recovered from where we were back in March of 2000. So that's why a small cap, I felt like, doesn't have those valuations that they had a few years ago. So we've been dialing that down because when you get into a, a mature marketplace, you now want to tighten down the hatches. You want to prepare yourself for the next recession, and that's what might be coming on. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I'm just telling you, after you've had 
four good years in the marketplace and you start to see the volatility and you start to see the economic data that we've seen coming out with home sales starting to struggle a little bit, some of the employment numbers are starting to change, some of the same store sales numbers are starting to decline a little bit, you have to ask yourself, is this the time to tighten down the hatches? And when that happens, you do go more for the um, the mature marketplaces and you go back to food stocks, utilities, just your staples to everyday life, things that probably aren't going to be impacted by the changing marketplace as much. So you have to think about those things. I hope that helps. I would not go put 60% of my money into the small and mid-cap funds. You've got to have a good core holdings and usually you want to anchor your stock portfolio with American large cap uh, investments. And you know, a good place to go is obviously the S&P 500 index funds. You can buy that through exchange traded funds as well as through index funds. You know, Vanguard, Fidelity have really good options there. But I will tell you, when markets start to get volatile, I've even, you know, I'm a huge index fan, but I have even recently started pulling a little bit of my money out of the large cap index funds like the S&P 500 and putting over a decent portion of it to Dodge and Cox stock. Now, unfortunately, Dodge and Cox stock is such a good fund that it is considered a hard close to new investors. So if you're not already in it, you can't make that move, but it's still something to consider. So I hope that helps out, Robert. Um, I do want to read part of Robert's. I got um, I get all kind of solicitations in the mail from investment companies, and um, I got something this past week from Aurora Investment Council, and they had just a market commentary. And I, I, I'm, I don't use this product. I just like their commentary. I'm going to read you one paragraph, and this has to do with what I was just explaining too, just understanding what you have to put up with with the market cycles and how long you need to be prepared to invest to be a long-term investor. It says. Market history tells us that stock investors lose money on average one out of every three years. What horrible odds. There are roulette bets that can be more favorable. The key to turning this unhappy aspect of stock market investing in our favor is the power of time. If you held your stocks for five years, then your chance of losing money in the stock market falls to 15% of the time. You only have a 3% chance of losing money in the stock market if you've invested for a full 10-year period. And this includes the Great Depression, the 1970s, Kennedy's assassination, and will most likely include the Internet bubble a few years hence. So I just thought that was a great thing just to keep you on focus as to understanding how asset allocation as well as just keeping your mindset of being a long-term investor will help you out with understanding how you should look at your portfolio. Now the next question. This is from Ryan. He's here in Atlanta, by the way. He says, Brian, I love your podcast and really appreciate you doing it. Since you truly are a money guru, I was hoping you could answer a question for me. As part of diversifying my retirement portfolio, I want to invest roughly 20% of my IRA slash 401k money into bond funds. I'm 30 years old with a and a conservative investor. With money market funds, Fidelity Select Money Market is the example he provides, returning 5% or more. Do you see any downside with using money markets instead of bond funds? If so, what are the downsides, and can you recommend any good inflation-protected bond funds? Thanks again for doing such an awesome podcast. Well, Ryan, I need, and maybe you know this, but I want to make sure when I get questions like this, I, want to, I go back to the basic simple definitions because I want to make sure everybody understands that. There's a huge difference between money market funds and bond funds. Bond funds are buying into debt instruments, meaning that, Essentially, you're helping lend money 
to a company that's growing or the government that needs the, they issue bonds, which is saying they'll repay the debt over time, whereas money markets are cash equivalents. They, um, you know, they behave like cash. They react like cash. They might, you might be buying a high yield money market, but still, um, its principle is pretty secure. Uh, so it's a big difference, whereas bonds do not have that same, you know, backing, whereas bonds can fluctuate just like stocks can. Now let me explain what I talk about when, when I mean that they have fluctuation. In a rising interest rate marketplace, bonds can get beat up pretty good. Because remember, as interest rates are going up, the value of your bond is going down. And you say, well, why is that the case? The reason is, think about it, if you have a, a 4% bond that you bought a few years ago, and now because the Fed continues to raise interest rates as well as interest rates are going up in the marketplace just because of inflationary pressure, now bonds are yielding 5%. Why would anybody buy your 4% bond from you when they can go out in the marketplace and buy a brand new 5% bond? Nobody wants your 4% bond because they could get a better rate of return just by buying a brand new issued 5% bond. So what do you have to do to sell it if you, were, if you needed the cash at that time? You would have to go discount the value, the principal value of that bond. And that's why you will see bonds that have yields that are below market right now will be sold at discounts. And that's where you, it's just like a stock can fluctuate in value, a bond can fluctuate as well. Now, the exact opposite also happens if you own a bond, say at 7, 8, 9, 10% from, you know, years back, and then interest rates start going down because maybe the economy is not in great shape, they start dropping interest rates, you get the exact opposite. Obviously, if interest rates are going down, more people want your bond that was issued at 8% when the market's now at 4%. So what are they going to do if they want to buy your bond, you know, even though the market now is much lower? They're going to have to pay you a premium. So it works just like a stock, meaning that there's price fluctuations in bonds. So you need to make sure you understand that there's a huge difference between bonds as well as versus money markets because, like I said, bonds are fixed income. They're debt instruments, whereas money markets are more cash equivalents and don't work that way. Now, money markets... Um, I don't consider them great long-term investments, and you ask me why. The reason is is because why do we not stay in cash in the first place is because we're worried about inflationary concerns. If you, Your inflation risk is, is that the longer you hold cash, the more less you're going to be able to buy in the future because cash just cannot keep up with the eating away of the, of the buying power, the purchasing power, of your funds. So money markets, sure, are getting close to 5% and some of them are even over 5% now. And the reason is, though, because we have inflationary pressures right now. You, you can see, we just talked about oil is, you know, well into the 70s now per barrel. Cost of lumber is outrageous now. The cost of construction has gone up tremendously. The cost of everything is getting expensive and that's what's causing your, your money markets um, you know, that's why the Fed is continuing to raise interest rate is because they're trying to hedge off some of these inflationary pressures and, and you're paying a higher price. So you've got to be careful staying in cash. Now, it doesn't say you can't increase your allocation to cash because you're trying to see what happens in the marketplace. Hopefully it'll level out. You can get some direction, figure out if the market's going up, if we're coming out of this economic cycle of volatility. That's why I do think it's smart to have some cash um, and money markets and, and cash equivalents, and that's why I've actually increased some of our clients' 
portfolios because I just want to see what happens with the marketplace. But to go, as you put it in your email, 20% to cash I think is a little out there. I think you got to be careful. I also would question somebody who's 30 years old in a 401k that you can't get until you're 59 and a half in the first place. Is that really the best place for you to put 20% of your portfolio? I'd love for you to go out there and look at some of the absolute return funds that are out there that, uh, you know, do have risk of their own, but are good alternatives for young people to, instead of buying just straight bond funds. And when I say absolute return funds, I'm talking about something like Hussman's Strategic Growth Fund, um, the Gateway Fund, the Caldwell and Orkin Market Opportunity Fund. These are funds you can go research out there. And I'll tell you, they, they might have underperformed a little bit while we've had a good up marketplace. But go look at what those funds did from 2000, 2001, 2002 when the market was getting hammered out there, and you'll see why I think they're a good alternative to buying bonds for younger people. So go out there and look at some of these things, and hopefully, Ryan, that helps you out a little bit. Um, got another email here from Karen. Karen had a question on health savings accounts. And what Karen asked was, on HSAs, can I put in my allowed $1,050 every year, just keep that at its max. Another radio host wants it left alone to have a tax-free savings account. Should I pay out of pocket on doctor visits and leave my deductible loan? Good show, by the way, Karen. Well, Karen, actually, that's a, that's a calendar year threshold that you, if you're deductible on your health savings accounts, $1,050, you can put that in each and every year. And that's why this is a great savings instrument that you can use not only for your health spending and medical costs, but also for retirement. Now, as for do you use it for out-of-pocket ex medical expenses, or do you just let it grow and just pay for this stuff and not get your help, you know, your HSA to reimburse you? I think it, it depends really on your situation. You know, I, I went to a, a conference and they had a specialist there that was talking about HSAs, and she was saying a healthy individual typically only uses from, you know, and this is talking about health insurance, not even talking about HSAs. The average person only seeks about less than $500 a year from their medical insurance company for reimbursement because most people just don't get sick that often. Uh, so I think truly you could probably, you know, obviously absorb the over-the-counter stuff and the small dental expenses, but don't feel, be scared of using your HSA also for medical expenses. If you have some, it depends on your financial situation. If you're looking for an additional way to save for retirement in addition to your Roth IRAs and 401Ks, this is it. But because, on the same side, because you do have Roth IRAs and 401Ks, don't be scared to use this HSA to pay for your medical expenses. Now, I also want to bring out, because you said 1050 was your deductible, that's the lowest you can have as a single Individual and 2100 is the lowest deductible you can have um, for a family. But you can actually get plans out there that will allow you to put in that have deductibles of $2,700 for an individual and $5,450 for families, meaning that you could put in for a fan, you know, if you're a single individual, $2,700 a year. That is amazing. If you think about that, I've told you a healthy young person is easily spending less than $500 a year probably on their medical expenses, and you're able to put $2,700 into a tax-free savings account. 
by the time you can pull that out at age 65, that thing is going to be worth a ton of money. So it truly is a great way to save for your future health care needs as well as for future retirement. So really it's a double whammy because as I've already preached in the last podcast, Social Security's got issues. Well, we also know Medicare and Medicaid have issues. So um, I think HSAs are getting better and better. I will tell you the only problem I have, and maybe they've worked out these kinks. I looked at them for myself before I got on um, a different health, health insurance plan was there were issues if you're at that age where you're thinking about growing a family. Some of the HSAs that I looked at at the time, and this is about a year and a half, two and a half years ago, uh, they had problems with covering all the cost of pregnancy for my wife. So that was one of the reasons we didn't jump over. But if you're not in that age of, of having children or you're a single individual, HSAs are a great opportunity and you really might want to consider looking at them. So I really appreciate the email, uh, Karen, and I, I, thanks so much for the feedback. Now, we're running out of time. I actually have one more email. I'm going to try to go through this as quick as possible because uh, I don't want to go too long with you guys because that was one of the feedback comments is that sometimes we go these shows carry on longer than they should. Um, I do try to keep them at 35 minutes, but we do run over from time to time. Okay, this email, I'm not going to give the person's name because I just don't think that, that it's appropriate based upon the depth of some of the things they told us. So I'll go ahead and read this out. I would appreciate if you could comment on the following sometime in the future on your Money Guy show. By the way... Keep up the good work. I love the show. When I try to balance my assets, something like 60% stocks, 30% bonds, 5% cash, 5% gold, silver, platinum, I always get stumped as to what to do with my mortgage. And what about my home? Do I ignore both both it and the mortgage? My house is worth somewhere around $1.6 million conservatively. Wow. Uh, it was about $2 million six months ago, but we all, we all know what happened with real estate prices. And I owe about $400,000 on it. Um, this is not a small amount. I then have about 700k in stocks, 200k in bonds, 100k in cash, and 100k in precious metals. My mortgage is about $300,000, conforming with about $100,000 on the home equity line. I'm often faced with a decision of paying off the home equity line or investing the proceeds when I get paid. The two choices have different effects upon my asset allocation depending upon whether I consider the mortgage to be a negative bond position or not. Then again, my 300K conforming first is a fixed rate, so maybe I should only consider the home equity line of credit to be a negative bond position. I would be most appreciative if you could comment on this dilemma. Well, first of all, there's several issues here. I'm going to break this out and tell you what my thoughts are on this email. First, dealing with your home, and this is for everybody. It doesn't have to be just with somebody who has a house worth $1.6 million. If you love your house and plan on dying there, and there are people. I know my, my own parents, when um, they built their last house, they love that house, and they plan on being there forever. If you do build a house, you love the house, you love the area, you love the location, and you pretty much plan on being there forever, then you need to exclude that home from your retirement plan, as well as from your portfolio. However, if you do plan on downsizing in the future and you want to consider using those funds for the, the difference between the new house, the smaller house that you go buy, and your current house for retirement, you can still use that, that you can consider that money, that difference for retirement, but still I want you to exclude that from your portfolio. Remember, I tell you guys, and this is for everybody, that you need to try to save 15 to 20% for retirement. 
Now, with somebody in this situation where it's obviously a high net worth situation, I would tell you that you need to make sure that you're maxing out all the retirement options, the 401Ks, the profit sharings, the 403Bs, whatever is available to you. And after you have maxed those out, remember those thresholds are pretty high, meaning that you can do $15,000 a year in those 401Ks and 403Bs. So after you've maxed those out and you still, because you're a high net worth individual and a high income earner, you have extra money, I would tell you, sure, that's when you need to come back, pay off that home equity line of credit, because I'll tell you, currently Prime is at 8.25%. And so you can see if you're paying off an eight and quarter percent loan, that's a pretty good rate of return because there's not too many things out there guaranteeing that you will make eight and a quarter percent a year. As you put it, a negative bond position. But I will tell you, after you pay off that home equity line of credit, you do have a dilemma. And this is because you have to figure out which part of your brain you're going to go with because when you pay off that home equity line, all you're going to have left is that fixed Mortgage. Now, this is for everybody. You think this doesn't have to be just a high net worth. When all you have is that fixed rate mortgage, and you're trying to figure out, do I pay off my mortgage or do I go and invest the difference? I think you have to ask yourself first, where are you at in being close to retirement? If you're getting on up there and you're getting close to your retirement goals, meaning that you're getting close to maybe 60, 65, even 55, depending upon when you think you want to retire, go ahead and pay off that debt. Because one of the first things I like to see my clients do once they come into retirement is I do like them to be completely debt-free. Now, if you're a little bit younger and you're trying to figure out, you know, you've got quite a few years for retirement and you want to make sure that you're in good shape, you, you have a dilemma because you then have to ask yourself, do I pay off this mortgage or do I um, invest the money? And there's analytical arguments all day long. They can, you can go look at historical returns and so forth that you should never pay off that mortgage because you can get a better rate of return in the stock market. But I have an issue with that, even for younger people, because I think what that does not take into account is the psychological benefit of having no debt. There's a reason that you hear other talk show hosts play off this trumpet music and um, movie quotes and all kind of other explosions when they, people call in and say, I'm debt-free, and you know you hear everybody give a big hurrah. It's because there is there's, is a psychological thing that happens when you owe nobody any money. And I don't think you can discount that. Now, I know analytically you can say that rate of return is better all day long, and it probably is on paper. But there is something very beneficial to paying off all debt as soon as possible. So um, that's the part of the dilemma. You have to ask yourself, do you go analytical, meaning you invest that money and just pay your mortgage over the timetable that's amortized, you know, that 30-year or 15-year rate? Or do you go with the side that says, hey, I want to make sure that I don't owe anybody any money. I'm going to go ahead and pay down this debt. So those are, those are the, that's where I think the true dilemma is, and I appreciate you writing in, and I hope that helps out. So I'm going to close down the email side of things, and I want to thank you guys so much. Um, for being a part of the show. Now, I will tell you, part of that feedback that I said, I, I, I do have some survey results. I want to get into this even more next podcast, but I have heard your call talking about the audio quality. And part of, as I get the new website up and we start making funds, money, from some of the subscribers as well as some support from you guys, um, I do have plans. I already know the, the microphone I want to upgrade to. I think that will fix that tinny part. A lot of you guys have said that there's kind of a tinny um, sound to the to the the podcast. It also sounds, some of you said it sounds like I'm in a bathroom when I'm doing the show. 
we're going to fix those things. So I've heard what you said. I've also, even though I'm going long on today's show, once again, I'm going to try to get this thing consolidated down to 30 to 40 minutes as well. So I've heard everything you guys have said. I do want to tell you that the positive comments far outweighed the, sm- um, the, the negatives, but I need the negatives to continue to grow, and you guys have been a big part of it. Please hang in there on um, the technology issues we've had. We're going to make this, sure this thing is fixed. We're going to continue to grow, and we're going to bring you the advice. It's going to continue to restore order to your financial chaos. Until next time, may God bless you with good wealth, good health, good family and friends. Thanks so much. This is Brian, the money guy.